Sometimes you have those conversations that are so impactful, so thought-provoking, and so honest that you really wish you could stay in the conversation for hours. And it's only fitting, therefore, that for our 100th episode (laughs) that you're listening to on, by the way, Misasha, I haven't told you this, on the top 1.5% of the 1.9 million podcasts in the world, that's our ranking. We're in the top one and a half percent according to the rankings. I just found this out. That's amazing. We were blessed with just that type of interaction. And it is a conversation, honestly, you really don't want to miss. So we had this conversation with a man named Professor Irvin Staub, and this is a name that you should know. Professor Emeritus of Psychology and the founding director of the Psychology of Peace and Violence program at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, he survived Nazism as a young child. Professor Staub is a prolific author and researcher who's worked in Rwanda as an expert witness in the Abu Ghraib trials, and he's helped implement training programs for various police forces after Rodney King. He's done teacher trainings to help children become caring and nonviolent, and he has too many awards for us to even begin listing them here, because that would take our full hour. When we sat down to talk with him, we were post-capital insurrection and pre-inauguration, So we were kind of stuck in that limbo between despair and disgust at what we had seen on January 6th and also cautiously optimistic that a path forward for change and dignity was returning less than a week later. He gave us not only real talk, but hope. And like Sarah said, this is an episode you won't want to miss. And because it is our 100th episode, we are asking you to do something. This is a conversation, honestly, we would love for you to share far and wide because we need to keep talking. We need to keep moving towards empathy, dignity, respect, and change, and because we all need some hope. We're going to be talking about the roots of good and evil and where we are in society and what you can do as a human being in our society now. So we would love for you to share this episode with your closest five friends, and we would love to hear. Yeah, we just love it when you tell us about who else is listening to this show. So thank you all for being here and for making this 100th episode possible. We appreciate you. Please share with your choice people. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and how to be more anti-racist. We're your half Japanese, half white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. You know, Professor Staub, you're an internationally recognized expert who has spent decades studying the psychology of good and evil, and you've studied bystanders and perpetrators in the context of violence. And Misasha and I both firmly believe we need to build our capacity to come together or the future of this country, the United States, is in jeopardy. The U.S. has been divided, as shown in the storming of the Capitol building in early 2021, and the threat of violence is real. And yet there's also the potential for a lot of good if we lean into our humanity. So I'm really grateful that you're here to talk with us about what leads people to help others. This kind of conversation gives us hope rooted in science. And this conversation is so personally important to us as well. You know, with all the work you've done in this realm, I mean, and truly decades of work and you've done, what are some of the key points, which may be difficult to distill, but what are some of the key points you want everybody to know about the roots of good and evil? Well, one key point is how we raise children and the experiences we provide them. If we raise them in a way that they develop caring about other people, that also makes it more likely that they 
will not join violent groups and in fact continue on a life of caring and helping and active bystandership. If we provide them with experiences that lead to fear and hostility towards others, that will manifest not only in their individual behavior, but it also makes it more likely that they join violent, hostile and violent groups. Now, I will talk later about some of these experiences, what they are, but I just want to give now a kind of general view of some elements that lead to caring and violence. One of the things about children and adults is that individuals and groups learn by doing that they change as a result of their own actions. So, for example, in the case of mass killing or genocide, one group turning against another in really intense ways, it often starts with a negative view of the other and then discrimination against that group and then small violent actions and then increased violence. And this evolution is both psychological, it is institutional, it is behavioral. So it's extremely important to be aware of this, that when there are more limited things early on, then we won't just say, oh, okay, this is nothing, because it can lead to something else. And then when do you decide to take action? The rule of bystanders in this is extremely important. What are bystanders? Bystanders are witnesses who are in a position to know what's happening and they are in a position to also do something. And the bystanders often even close their eyes to what is happening and also often don't take action. So, for example, I did a study once many years ago when I was at Harvard. I had one of my students collapse on a quiet street in Cambridge, Massachusetts, when somebody was approaching from another 50 yards. And people were approaching on the other side of the street. Some people looked over and after a single glance rushed over. Other people stopped and looked and hesitated. And sometimes while they hesitated, others arrived and took action. But some of people, after a single glance, they looked away, they continued on their way, and some of these people turned off the street at the next corner. And it's not only individuals, some individuals who avoid taking in information, I assume, because by taking in information, they might feel obligated to take some action, which they don't want to do. But groups, nations, leaders of countries, when there is tremendous violence in other countries, also do this kind of avoidance and closing their eyes. So the behavior of bystanders is very important. I was talking about the evolution of violence in groups. And uh, as you know, I have been working with police. I created a program many years ago of training police officers to be active bystanders to take action when a fellow officer is doing unnecessary harm to someone. And the same is also true of police departments. When officers do these things as individuals and then nobody takes action to 
inhibit what they are doing, then the whole system can evolve and there can be this evolution towards police department that is more hostile and more dangerous to civilians. And maybe I'll just finish this part about talking about the power of leaders to generate evil, also to generate goodness, but to generate evil. You know, under certain social conditions, people's material needs are frustrated, but just as importantly, core psychological needs are frustrated. What are some of these needs? Well, one of them is a need to have a positive identity. Another is a need to have a feeling of security, that I can take care of myself, protect myself, and protect my family. Another is a need to feel connection to other people, individuals and groups. And another important need is to understanding our world and our place in it. And when social conditions are chaotic and problematic, then that need of understanding of reality is also frustrating. So difficult social conditions can frustrate all these needs. And when then a leader steps forward, even if they don't succeed in helping people satisfy more material needs, if they provide them with a vision and provide them with other things that help satisfy these psychological needs, they acquire a lot of power and can lead people towards evil actions. I definitely heard and thought about many parallels between what you said and the state of the United States right now. And yet, before we dive into that, could you explain in that experiment, when you had the man collapse in Cambridge, were you able to gather data on what types of people came to help and what types of people carried on? Or was it really about those societal conditions and the psyche that they needed to have in place? Well, no, we were not able to gather that kind of a data. And actually, you know, the people who pass by, they just pass by and disappeared. But the other people, all I can tell you is that there were no differences in terms of gender and in terms of age. Teenagers, the few who saw what was happening as they passed by, were as likely to help as older people. Women were as likely to help as men. That's as far as we could do. In terms of these people who passed by, we not only witnessed this with our eyes, we also took films of what was happening. So we are pretty sure of understanding how people acted. But we did not have an opportunity to stop these people, interview them. We debriefed them, meaning we couldn't debrief the people who disappeared, but we debriefed them, meaning that we told them what this was about and that this was an experiment. And we even got in touch with the police beforehand in case they would get calls saying that this person is lying on the ground so that they knew what was going on. That's good to know. You know, what you said about how these small instances of violence escalate, we've seen that happen. Now, it reminds me as a parent about this idea of, you know, if your child is killing little animals, you might want to be aware that they may have a tendency towards violence in the future as well. So I feel like that works for the individual, but it seems like also for society at large. How does some of this work relate to what's happening right now with American patriotism and this 
current climate, like the insurrection we saw at the Capitol? Well, it's uh, in a way surprising to the extent that in our country, even for white people, material and psychological needs are not fulfilled. There are groups of people for whom material needs are not sufficiently fulfilled, especially comparatively. They look at some elements of society and compare it to themselves, and they feel like they were left behind. And also, the same thing about psychological needs, you know, if they are not feeling integrated into society as a whole, then their feeling of connection is frustrating. If they don't feel that they are able to take care of themselves and their families satisfyingly, that is frustrating. And also, you know, people grow up in under very different circumstances. Somebody many years ago did a study of kids who got involved with extremist groups and found that often the father was missing, that often they on their own became interested in extreme ideologies. Some of them sent away for books about Hitler or Nazism, and then they became kind of the foot soldiers in extremist groups. Now, this was, you know, 20, 25 years ago. But I think it's probably applicable now also that, as I was saying earlier, the way you grow up, if you don't have a sense of security, if you don't have a sense of connection to other people, if you experience hostility, then you bring these things to your life and you become open to in a kind of radicalization. Now, if there is a leader that uses these roots in people and enlarges them and advocates hostility and negative behavior towards other people, as Trump has done in relation to actually everybody except white Americans. I mean, it's amazing. He manages to generate hostility even towards Jews, even though he has a daughter who converted to Judaism and a son-in-law who was one of his major advisors who is Jewish, but also certainly to every other group. And so then these people join. And I write about and have done research on what I call blind patriotism and constructive patriotism. And blind patriots are saying, my country, whatever. And that feeling about my country can be transformed to a leader who they identify as standing in for the country and a leader of the country. So they can identify with Trump and my leader, right or wrong. And that can become really problematic. And that's what has been happening. Constructive patriots, in contrast, say, just like blind patriots, I love my country. But they say, because I love my country, when my country deviates from universal humane values or its own core values as a nation, I need to speak out. That my love of the country leads me not to obey some kind of a leader or 
some policies in the country that are considered patriotic, even if they are problematic, but to speak out against problematic policies. So what we have now is that all these people are following this leader driven by inclinations that they have developed and intensified by Trump. And unfortunately, interestingly, sadly, many people in Congress also have acted like blind patriots. They have not acted like constructive patriots who would say, I'm going to speak out because these practices or these words of Trump or these policies are contrary to humane values or our country's core values. So yes, there is a challenge here to what we mean by patriotism and what values we support in its name. You know, you've worked internationally with other governments, and obviously you've seen a lot in your own history. When you talk about this idea of blind patriotism versus constructive patriotism, have you seen examples where blind patriotism has gone wrong? And blind patriotism has gone wrong? I mean, in history, it seems like it, I've heard even my child was comparing this idea of blind patriotism, this idea of following a leader to the exclusion of the ideals of the country as something, for example, that Hitler played into. Is that a stretch or do you see that as an accurate comparison? Not a stretch at all. I mean, you know, Hitler defined being a good member of the group as following Nazi policies and practices, including the persecution of minorities, Jews, certainly, but also, you know, gypsies also. You know, the Nazis created the so-called euthanasia program, which was, euthanasia means mercy killing, mercy for people who need to be freed of suffering. But actually, it was a eugenics program, a program to purify the race. And so they started to kill, you know, children who had physical or mental problems, adults who had physical, you know, disabilities and problems and mental problems, you know, homosexuals. And they got psychiatrists to give you know, look at these people and identify the people to be killed. And uh, when I was in Germany in uh, 1980, I interviewed a group of older Germans who were teenagers at the time. And one of them was a nurse who was working at one of these facilities. And uh, so then they killed these people. They were even intending to kill people who were in prison in Germany who were physically unattractive. So now, this is the one thing that the population responded to, because when they learned that their loved ones, members of their families were killed this way, they spoke up. And most of this program was terminated. But in terms of everything else, all the actions of Nazi Germany against people, they just went along. And it was in the name of being good Germans, being part of their ethnic group and part of their country. So it was totally blind patriotism uh, led by 
a country that was now led by a leader who was unbelievable in terms of his extremeness and in his hero. So yes, and you know, and other countries also. I mean, in Turkey, for example, at the time of killing Armenians, and this particular incident did not take place at the time of the genocide of the Armenians in 1915-16, but earlier in something like 1910, when there was already killing of, of Armenians, and there were German women lined up and making this sound, this song that was a kind of celebration of what was taking place as these Armenians were being taken away. So people, if I may use such non-scientific term, get crazy in their hate. And you know, one of the things is, when you talk about some of these things, for example, let's say, talking about Auschwitz, it's extremely important to not only talk about people's suffering there, because they were so degraded. And if it's communicated to people in general how degraded people were, then they may degrade them themselves even today. So it's extremely important to humanize these people. These people who were under such horrible conditions to show their humanity so that you generate empathy with them. That idea of empathy is central to so much of the work that Misasha and I aspire to do to talk about narratives that aren't often communicated and to highlight the voices of people that you might otherwise prejudge. And so I appreciate you really talking about that empathy a lot as one of the critical ways to stop this cycle. I want to talk about the related things because I have done a series of studies in what leads people help to help others. And I found that even more important than empathy is a feeling of responsibility for other people's welfare. When you feel, and empathy is usually a part of it, but a feeling of responsibility is something more focused. And when people feel responsible for others' welfare and also actually have feeling of power that they can affect others' welfare, they are most likely to help and engage in positive actions, be active bystanders. So we need to generate empathy and we need to go a step beyond that because it's possible to feel with people but not actually take action. So we need to feel with people and then move on, on to feel responsibility for their suffering and their potential well-being. I think that's such an important point because I wanted to ask, as Sarah and I are both mothers, you know, and you're talking about, you know, this creating this feeling and as parents, this is something we so want to do for our children. And so what do you see the roles of parents or teachers or society in building this and creating these active bystanders and creating this grounding and empathy? Is there one message, for example, that rises to the top for you? Or is there, you know, what tips can you offer? Because this is so important. Well, there are a series of practices. And 
underlying them a kind of orientation towards children. One element is from early on to be responsive to children's needs, to be aware of their needs and to be responsive to their needs. Now that involves a kind of benevolence towards children. And it's tragic that often that benevolence is lacking or sometimes even if the benevolence is there, there is a misguided sense that you create a good child by punishing them severely for various things. So responsiveness to children's needs, warmth and affection towards children. But warmth and affection alone is not enough. If you are unconditionally warm and affectionate, that could lead children to engage in negative behavior, and you are still warm and affectionate. So it's also very important to guide children, not only by rules, but also by underlying values. What are the values that the rules serve? And to guide them in positive ways, often by reasoning. You know, one of the practices that we have been, we psychologists have been doing research on is what is referred to as induction, pointing God to children, the consequences of their behavior for other people. This can be done even, you don't have to be totally calm to point out to your child when that child kicks another child, that, you know, this harms the other child and hurts the other child. It's perfectly okay to feel some passion and to point out what that means and how that affects another child. The research has focused on pointing out harmful consequences, and it shows that by the age of three, parents who practice this have children who are more empathic. But I believe that this is a continuous thing that can be done, and it is also important to point out positive consequences when children do positive things how that affects the other child, the other person, how that affects the parent when you do positive things. I think, in line of what I said before, that learning by doing is a very important practice. You know, children early on, especially if they grow up under the kind of conditions that I'm talking about, they like to be helpful. They like to be helpful in small ways, and they can be guided to be helpful in more significant ways. And they can be helpful not only in their family, but they can be helpful in going and do something for a neighbor. They can be helpful not only in people whom they experience as members of our in-group, like, you know, I'm a Protestant, member of a Protestant church, other Protestants, whatever, but also members of odd groups. And that can really make a difference in how kids experience other people and how kids experience themselves. That kind of learning by doing leads children to feel that one, they are helpful people, and two, they have the power to benefit others. 
So that is also very important. And then that leads to getting children to be active bystanders. Now, this is challenging because, you know, your child comes home from school and says that Joe or Josephine is being picked on by other kids. And your child wants to speak up. And you are worried. If your child speaks up or defends that child, is your child also going to become a victim? So are you going to tell your child never to take any action that involves risk, that involves moral courage? So I think the best way to do is to talk to your child about what may be the best way to take action, how to maximize their influence while minimizing their risk. Of course, one way that is a positive way is, you know, I have done training, you know, as you probably know, I have trained police to be active bystanders who stop fellow officers from engaging in unnecessary harmful behavior. And that training, which I developed a long time ago now, is in third derivation. First, we updated the training to use it in New Orleans. It was used extremely effectively, received a lot of media attention. We had a number of conferences with police leaders who wanted to introduce the program. Then some of my associates established a new organization called ABLE, Active Bystandership for Law Enforcement. And now we are in the process of training 70 police departments, including places like New York with its 36,000 officers. And, you know, the Attorney General of New Jersey ordered every police department in the state to get this training. And it is all over the country. And there are a hundred other departments in line waiting for us. But I also developed a training for students in schools. And part of this training is how to start with minimal action. You know, if somebody is abusive to another child, you don't rush at them and fight them. You say something very limited. And you may just put your arm around the child who is being victimized and say, come on, let's leave. Let's walk away. And you walk away with the child. But another thing that you can do is to turn to other kids and say, oh, this is a problem. You know, maybe we should do something and bring them in as allies. So the point is that you need to help your child under such circumstances to be a courageous, active bystander. And of course, the problem is, as I said before, you cannot just point to bad behavior on the tarp of Trump and its bad consequences. Because if you develop prejudice against the victims of that bad behavior, then rather than feeling empathy, you feel that that behavior is justified. So for example, one of the most heartrending actions of President Trump has been to order that parents and children be separated at the border and then sending parents back to their countries while keeping children here. And this was done in such a horrendous manner 
indicating that they never intended reuniting them, that when even Republicans objected, one of the only things perhaps that they objected to, and they pretty much stopped this training, this, this practice, then they had great difficulty reuniting them. So you point out the harm to children, but if you devalue those people who were trying to come into the country and have a negative view of them, that is not going to give rise to the type of feelings that would turn police or other people against Mr. Trump. So we have to find the right ways and the right tools and the right entryway into this. We talked a lot about how important the childhood years are in cultivating the psychology of an individual who would be more likely to be an active bystander. Two questions from there were, what can we do now that I'm an adult, I can't control what happened in my childhood. What are the things that on an individual level I can do to build a better community, to be a better active bystander? And then secondly, you had mentioned there were certain conditions like this sense of agency and I have my a safety and I'm empowered, you know, there's societal structures in place, which when you were talking about them, made me think like there is a huge wealth inequality in our country. So first question is like, what are the individual things? And the second thing is, what are the policies that we need to consider in our country to make it more likely that more people will be willing to help each other? I don't know what, whether policies are the best way. One thing that we can all do let me just work myself into this. One thing that we can all do is small, kind actions. What does that mean? I mean, that doesn't address inequality depending on what the actions are. But, you know, I decided at some point that I'm going to try these small, kind actions, and I do it even more than whatever I used to do. You drive down the road, and there is somebody is trying to get in from the side. And it's amazing that even when the line is stopped, very often people don't let that person in. So I decided that I'm going to let them in whenever I am not in incredible, ridiculous hurry, I will let them in. And other such actions, being kind to the person at the grocery counter who packs your groceries, Now, what is that about? I do believe in generalized reciprocity. Reciprocity means that when you help people and also when they perceive your help as unselfish, not because you want anything from them, I believe that, first of all, they are more likely to help you. But if there is no opportunity for that, or even if there is, there is a little bit of an increase in their likelihood to help others. So by these small acts, we can increase caring and helping in the society. Then another thing is taking small risks to engage in political discussions. It's amazing how we avoid it. You know, you perceive someone as a Trump supporter, I assume you are not, but maybe you are a Trump supporter, and then you don't talk politics to them. Now, it's problematic. 
We know because of the intense feelings that we have. But one way that I have tried to practice this a little bit is asking people questions. Why do you believe this? Why do you think that? What do you think about the fact that Trump separated adults and children? And, uh, you know, Socrates tried to educate the youth of Greece primarily by asking them questions and guiding them through questions. So, okay, none of us is Socrates, but we can also do this. Then another thing is find a realm that speaks to you and engage in action in that realm. Join organizations relevant to that realm. Uh, Speak to people about that realm. Write to newspapers about that realm. I have the belief that if hundreds of thousands of us write letters to the editor about a particular issue, even if they don't publish any of those letters, it is likely to influence their editorial policies because they know what people want and think out there. And it is to their financial benefit, if nothing else, to go along with that. Then another thing is respond to emergencies. What do I mean? Well, you know, one emergency has been how people in the African-American community have been treated by police. And think about what you can do. Again, to talk to people, to write to people, to join relevant organizations. The same thing about inequality. You can have some influence by however small financial contributions to relevant organizations, joining relevant organizations. It was fantastic the number of people went out to protest after George Floyd was killed. I mean, it was flabbergasting. Of course, you know, not flabbergasting to Fox News because they are extremely focused on the very limited violence that took place at that time. And it's unfortunate that there was that violence, but it is often the case that in the first wave of protests, it's people who are politically involved who come to protest. Then there is another wave of people who are opportunistic. They come to break into stores, to take things. But after a very limited amount of this, there were these huge marches with all these people marching peacefully. So doing all these things, a variety of these things, are all very important. You know, some people can also decide that I'm going to run for office. That is also a very important way to get involved. If you have strong values, you are in a community, even if you are a community where you think your political values don't fit right away. I mean, okay, we had a little bit of luck with that, but see what happened in Georgia. So getting active politically that way, uh, even if you don't try to kind of join the local political organization and try to exert an influence in terms of values, 
practices, actions can make a difference. I love all of that. And just by the very fact that Bisasha and I have this podcast, you know, we're the type of people who will do things when we feel it needs to be done and speak up, you know, but we hear a lot about people who are busy, who find this sort of thing too hard, especially because they're not the people who are most impacted. You know, we did hear from you saying that these small acts of violence will escalate and that will affect us all. But for those who are currently feeling like it's too hard, what is the benefit for them to get out of that mindset and use their voice and start participating? Or, and or I guess, what is the downside when people don't speak up, when they're not being active bystanders or participating in the society at large? Well, the downside is clear. And that is that there can be some kind of an evolution in a negative direction that then impacts them and their children and their grandchildren over time. You know, one of the things that I talk about when I have prepared videos for police that are shown at these trainings and so on is our training affects police officers in a variety of ways. A couple of them I just mentioned, that's not what I'm focusing on here, but a couple, one of them is, you know, they won't lose their jobs if their harmful behavior is discovered. They won't be criminally prosecuted, whether they are harmdoers or passive bystanders who observed harmdoing and didn't do anything. But other police officers in police who don't do these things are also negatively affected by these things because there is dissension within the department. Being an ethical officer in a department that has these problems in unnecessary harmful behavior, that's not comfortable. Police are supposed to support each other. How do you support each other in good conscience when you feel separate from a good number of officers who are either harmdoers or passive bystanders? So changing the culture and values and behavior of a police department also affects officers who are just members of the department. I think the same thing applies in not as intense a way, but it applies to a community. It applies to a small town. It applies to a city. It applies to our country. When we have all these divisions, it's inevitable that some of it comes back to us and impacts us. I mean, think about your children in schools when there is all this disparate kind of orientation among children and disparate experience in how children are raised. And when there is just one or two kids in the classroom who have really problematic behavior, how everything is affected. Other kids are affected. The capacity of children to teach is affected. So no, none of us really, basically, unless you are able to send your child to an elite private school where there is no diversity and no anything and everybody is white and everybody is 
you know, principled and whatever, if there is still such a thing in this day and age, you know, but pretty much all of us are affected that way. And the children are affected through social media and the parents are affected through children who are more difficult to socialize and guide. So I do think that, you know, in a society which is as affected by opposing beliefs and orientations and chaos, all of us need to take action. And talking about chaos, you know, one of the things about Mr. Trump, apart from other specific wrongdoing is the amount of chaos that he has created in our lives. And that is just tragic. I mean, unless you were able to be completely politically uninvolved, you didn't pay attention, or unless it became part of his base right away, so loved to go to his rallies or whatever, you know, all of us were completely impacted all the time by the chaos and by his inaction inaction in relation, in relation to the pandemic. You know, lying. We might think that he may have believed his lies, but we know that that is not true. For example, from that tape that we saw where he said the pandemic, you know, this is not a pandemic, this is going to go away, nothing. And on the tape he said, this is extremely contagious. So, Clearly, he knew, but that's not what he said. So anyway, what I am saying is, who can in good conscience today opt out for participation in the social world? I love that so much. And I am wanting to ask a question about your past. And without wanting to pry or trigger you, and I truly mean this, I want to honor that you lived through the experiences of the Holocaust. Would you be willing to share anything from that period? And how does your past experience influence your work today? Well, well at this point in my life, I don't have any problem in talking about it. For many years, giving talks, I never talked about it because I was pretty dumb. And I thought that if I talk about my experiences in the Holocaust, people will say, oh, that's why he's doing this and discount what I was doing. But I completely turned around around that. I mean, who is to do this kind of work if not people who have relevant experiences? So anyway, yeah, I was a six-year-old child in the worst of times in Hungary, about a, about. 450,000 Hungarian Jews in the summer of 1944 by Eichmann and 50 SS members were gathered in the countryside, supported by Hungarian police, Hungarian gendarmes, and Hungarians who joined and helped this to happen. And they were gathered and put into you know, cattle cars and taken to Auschwitz and most of them were immediately killed. I and my parents lived in Budapest and uh, we had a woman, you know, working for us, a Christian woman who was an incredible person. She took me and my sister into hiding. And later, my mother and my aunt got these letters of protection from Raul Wallenberg, a Swede, 
who was asked to come to Hungary and see if he can save lives after all these people were already killed. And he came to Hungary with incredible ingenuity and tremendous courage. He saved a lot of lives and he created these protective passes, which very tenuously protected people. He bought up houses and some of us could move into these houses with these. My father was in a forced labor camp. My uncle was also in a forced labor camp and he died there. My father, when he was brought back to Budapest on the way to Germany, his whole group was taken to Germany. He alone escaped and He knew where we were because the same woman who was helping us in various ways went to the forced labor camp, asked somebody at the wire fence to bring him to the fence and handed him a copy of this so-called letter of protection. Now, this was completely useless to him. Men of his age were not protected by this. But my mother and I later thought that maybe encouraged by this, He escaped and he came to the house where we were and he was hiding there. There were raids on the house. In one of them, I saw these people out through the window and marching down the street, Hungarian Nazis in black uniform. And I shouted, they are coming. And then I went to the door of this little apartment in which eight of us were staying in a one bedroom apartment and looked out and I saw them coming in through the gate of the building. And so my mother had the idea of having my father sit in the corner of the room, push an armchair over him, throw a blanket over the armchair. And these people searched everything and everywhere, but didn't find him. So anyway, I think that I was inspired by when I started this. For many years, I didn't think about this. But then when I was at Stanford, there was a visiting professor there in Imperial London who was the first study of what is now called rescuers in genocide. Rescuers in the Holocaust, but there are rescuers every genocide. People in the course of the evolution of violence remain passive. But a very small number of people where the actual killing begins, endanger themselves, endanger their children, endanger their families in order to save lives. So that Christian woman that I mentioned and Wallenberg were two rescuers important in my life. The more important was this Christian woman because I had a continuing relationship with her. And I consider her my seventh mother, And I think it was the inspiration of these two people that when I heard from Perry London as a graduate student in Stanford about their research on rescuers, I decided to begin to study helping behavior. And everything evolves and my work evolved and starting with very limited experimental studies on children sharing and then helping behavior of varied experiments, and then studying the roots of genocide and how we may prevent genocide, and then working on real-life settings like Rwanda, on reconciliation in order to prevent future violence and improve people's lives, and in Amsterdam, 
on Dutch-Muslim relations after violence there and in other settings, you know, I also learned by doing. Thank you so much for sharing. You're very welcome. As also a woman, I appreciate you sharing that idea of, you know, in the past you felt you had to separate your personal experience from the work you do. But it does seem that it is so much more powerful when we acknowledge ourselves as our whole being and can bring forth our personal experience as well as our intellectual contribution to the world because it makes it that much more sustainable and purpose-driven. And I appreciate you sharing that so much. You know, given what you know about where we have been in the world and in both horror and beauty and then where we are today, you mentioned just now in your story that people don't often get involved at the beginning stages of this violence. What do we need to do right now to build a better future? Well, I have some faith that Joe Biden is going to begin to do the things that will inspire people to get engaged. I mean, so far, he did just about everything. He talked in a positive, constructive way. And in contrast to what Trump was saying, something like slow Joe, he was energetic, he was clear, he was purposeful about creating unity in this country, and hopefully he will get to do policies related to that. Now, what do I mean policies related to that? Creating the building of infrastructure in the United States which would bring many people jobs so that they feel connected and worthwhile. I think that Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, one of his major good ideas was these work programs. The work programs at the time of the Depression did not just provide people with a livelihood, it provided with them with a sense of dignity and connection and participation. It said, you are part of the community. And the more we can bring people in to have a sense that they are part of our community, the more likely that some of the things that we have been happening will change, that people will change, that there psychological needs, apart from material needs, will be fulfilled. So action, in addition to guidance by values, is extremely important. So that kind of action is only one kind of action. Hopefully, Biden will begin to be able to talk to some of Trump's followers. You know, He is not in a bad position for that. He does come from a modest background. And two, he has served now for many, many years in the Senate and as vice president. But he was not born with a silver spoon in his mouth. And so he all along identified with working people. And if he can propagate that, both through words and actions, that will make a difference. And hopefully he can inspire a lot of people to join in this enterprise. There is also the question of how we can get the Republican Party to transform. 
I mean, it's flabbergasting, the passivity and obedience and alignment with Trump, no matter what, of these leaders of the country. I mean, how could they continue to go on and support his claims about a landslide victory where the judges he appointed were refusing to hear his cases because they were so wrong. So get peeling these people off, getting them to become more constructive participants and hopefully getting rid of some of them who were the worst. And again, we need good candidates who will run for office to transform this. People were talking at some point of some of these people splitting off from the Republican Party and forming a new Republican Party. I don't know if this is going to happen now with some people beginning to split off. A small number, 10 people voting for the impeachment. It's not a large number, but it is something. So what I'm saying is there will have to be multiple processes from the top down, from the bottom up, and from the middle. What does the middle mean? The middle means the media. The middle means you know, institutional leaders. The middle means church leaders. The middle means also, you know, how could evangelical Christians support the kinds of things that he was doing? So hopefully there will be now some transformation. You know, it's almost as if these people have been drugged by Trump. So anyway, that is a process ahead of us. And all of us need to participate in this process. It reminds me, you know, when you said that about earlier, you mentioned when we're raising children, we don't want to just give them the warm hugs when they do something bad. We need to give them consequences. I was sort of laughing on the inside thinking, where are the consequences that we're handing to the government officials who are inciting this sort of violence and belief in disproven, you know, conspiracy theories? But one thing Misasha and I had always said from when we started this show over a year and a half ago, almost two years, was this idea of there seems to be no line in the sand that people are willing to draw. Like you said, the evangelical Christians, in theory, should have standards that they believe in that are immutable, and yet they seem to be shifting and people aren't sort of holding true morally to these lines and and expectations of behavior. Is that human nature? Or is there something else going on? Is that the kind of thing that we see in societies that wind up having atrocities like the Holocaust happen? Or is that just stuff that happens everywhere? You know, it's quite problematic when people sacrifice really important values for the sake of what they consider higher goals. I saw an interview a long time ago with Falwell Jr., the current leader of, one of the current important leaders of the evangelical movement. And at that time, somebody asked him, you know, how can you support Trump after the Hollywood whatever interview, where the way he was talking about women was so derogatory. And it sounded like, what he was believing and thinking that the higher value is 
that Trump is going to support religious movements and Christian religious activities. Is that really the higher value or is supporting them in spite of acting contrary to so many humane and religious values really destructive to religion? I think people have to deal with this rationalization that they often engage in, that there are these higher goals and I can compromise many of my other values for the sake of these higher goals. And then it turns out at the end that those goals are also not served and uh, maybe defiled. So I think you are right about this, that there are certain lines in the sand that we need to draw and act accordingly and try to integrate these values with our so-called more important goals. I won't call them higher goals because they are not higher, but for some people maybe more important. What do you think? I think I could speak to you for hours. So I appreciate the time that you've given us. You know, I love that, you know, Misasha and I both met when we were undergraduates at Harvard. And both my father and grandfather were also Harvard grads. And my father, both of our fathers were there at the time that you were teaching there. And so, you know, I've lost all of those members of my family, but I appreciate the wisdom that I feel like you deliver in the way that I feel this love and respect for those elders in my life that I've lost. So thank you so much for this time and for being willing to share that. Okay. But I just want to say that whatever I know, I don't know because I spent a certain number of years at Harvard. Oh, of course. We of all people know this. (laughs) We believe that. (laughs) We can know these things through whatever is our institutional path through life. Absolutely. So very nice to meet the two of you. Good luck with your program. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation.